Welcome to the Pokes Podcast. I'm Jacob Longin. The COVID-19 pandemic has paused virtually the entire world. What does that mean for researchers, especially those whose work entails international travel? One faculty member dealing with that question is art history professor Louise Siddons, who was recently awarded a summer stipend from the National Endowment for the Humanities and a Fulbright U.S. Scholar Program Award. The Fulbright will fund her travel to London's Eccles Center for American Studies, assuming there are no complications. But as we've seen over the past six months, complications are a regular part of living in a world infected by COVID-19. Louise joins me to talk about what it's like to have your work as both a researcher and teacher in flux, why she likes abstract art, and what led her to research Laura Gilpin, a renowned photographer whose work documenting the lives of the Navajo Nation was featured in a 1957 exhibition at OSU. So you just got these two awards. I know those are uh, very prestigious. So that has to be exciting. It is very exciting. Can you explain a little bit about the Fulbright program? The Fulbright Commission is unique in the sense that it's a combination of a diplomatic fellowship program and a scholarly fellowship program. And so it has multiple goals. It wants to further American research uh, and scholarship, but it also wants to help spread the value of that research and teaching across the world. And so it does that with student fellowships. So uh, I think a lot of undergraduates are far more aware of the student opportunities that the Fulbright presents. And OSU has undergraduate and graduate students doing uh, Fulbrights fairly regularly, uh, in my experience. And then there's the U.S. Scholar Program, which is a faculty-based program, although I don't think that you have to be affiliated with a university to apply for a Fulbright. You just have to be doing research or teaching in a particular area. Each country is a separate application process. So as a faculty member, I first became aware of Fulbrights as something that I might actually want to do as something that was just out in the world because I was interested in uh, a research project that connects to Ethiopia. Uh, as you know, OSU has a long tie to Ethiopia and I was interested in researching some of the history of that uh, connection in relation to the history of the OSU art collection. So I started investigating Fulbrights and then when I was on sabbatical, I did a month long fellowship at the British Library at this Eccles Center for American Studies, which is uh, what it sounds like, a research center specifically for American studies. And the director there said, oh, do you know we have a Fulbright and you would be perfect for it. And he encouraged me to apply and I'd never thought about doing a Fulbright to the UK. They're extremely competitive. Uh, I spend every summer back in the UK anyway, so I have access to resources that a lot of people don't. Uh, the Fulbright offers this much longer term, obviously, opportunity to be in residence there. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's how I ended up applying. I actually applied twice. Uh, like I said, the, the UK ones are quite competitive. The Eccles Center was excited about my research. Um, Native American art history in particular is kind of under uh, understudied in the British Library collections, and yet they have one of the most incredible archival collections in the world, thanks to colonialism, basically. So the Fulbright Scholars Program is all about travel. What happens with you right now when we don't know where you can go and when? It's a very good question. And I think I benefit from the fact that the Fulbright Commission had the opportunity to think this through this spring. They uh, struggled with people who were currently in Fulbright uh, scholar posts all around the world when the coronavirus started to spread. 
some people had to go back to their home country. Some people were stuck in the country they were hosted in, but the funding got cut and so they had no support suddenly. So there's been a lot of challenges for a Fulbright and they've been very cautious about 2020-21 US scholars. They usually announce the Fulbrights in early spring semester, so in the winter. Um, and they held off, uh, I think, that they finally approved them in April or May because they just didn't know if they were even going to be allowed uh, to let people travel or to sponsor people's travel. For me, my award was uh, a six-month, is a six-month appointment, and so it was always going to start in January 2021. And that's what has been approved uh, is travel starting in January of 2021. So I lucked out in the sense that it didn't uh, so far impact my travel. And the other reason that I'm lucky is that a lot of Fulbright posts are teaching as well as research assignments and mine is purely research. So I am not in a position where as a Fulbright scholar, I'm supposed to be interacting with students face to face. I'm not supposed to be engaged in anything except for, uh, in this case, sitting in the British Library using the resources of the Eccles Center for American Studies. We actually had an email from the British Library yesterday uh, explaining how they're going to do spacing for researchers and how they're reopening in the next few weeks. They're really thinking hard about people's physical safety and their well-being in the space. If, if I travel, I'm probably going to have to go two weeks early. The UK has a two-week mandatory quarantine for people coming in from out of the country. But then the British Library sounds like it's well-equipped to think about how people can continue their research. And the one recommendation that the staff there made to me was that I find a place to live that's in walking distance because public transport in London is, A, I think quite dangerous, and B, uh, it was already overloaded before COVID-19, and now they're trying to limit the number of people on each train. It's uh, apparently quite difficult to get around the city on public transport. Like I said, fingers crossed. Uh, it's an incredible opportunity, and I really hope that I'll be able to go. So you're an expert in a lot of things, but telling the future is obviously not one of them. So I'm not <laughs> asking you to tell the future, but are you pretty confident that this is going to work out? And what happens if there is a second wave and uh, things just shut down? Predicting the future is impossible. Um, I'm pretty stubborn about going. Uh, <laughs> I think I, my priority, honestly, in terms of the Fulbright is access to the resources and being able to finish my book research. When anyone gets a, a Fulbright, uh, the university is partially supporting the faculty member and the Fulbright Commission is partially supporting the faculty member. I'm in a pretty unique position uh, in that I'm a UK citizen, so I can travel to the UK and I can stay there without needing a visa. So in the worst case scenario, in my head, Fulbright is not allowed to fund. If the travel advisories go above a certain level, they aren't allowed to fund scholars. And in that scenario, um, I have research leave for the spring semester, so I think I might just go anyway and use the library if the library remains open. Obviously, if the library doesn't open, there's not a lot of point uh, to going because it's using their archives and their resources. That is one of the goals of the project. So I would say I'm optimistic that in some way I will have the spring to do work. I don't want to make predictions that don't come true about the global health situation at that point. So you just threw in there that you're a UK citizen. Obviously, you don't have a British accent. What is the, what, what is the story with that? 
so I was uh, born in the UK. I was born outside London to British parents and we emigrated first to Canada when I was five and then to the US a couple years later. So I was a child. And although I picked up a Canadian accent briefly when we were in Canada, I quickly picked up uh, an American one when we moved to New York, uh, which is where I grew up for the most part. You also got a grant from the NEH that is a summer stipend? The NEH summer stipends are uh, essentially supposed to provide two months of salary. Uh, I don't know how many people listening to the podcast know that faculty salaries are nine or 10 month salaries, so we don't get paid in the summer. And so the summer stipend is a way to supplement your time, basically, to pay you for the summer so that you have the opportunity to focus on your own research. And uh, many faculty across campus, they fund their summer research uh, or their year-round research with grant money. So that's pretty standard. In the humanities, those grants are harder to find. A lot of faculty in the arts and humanities tend to fund their summers through teaching or through, uh, I've been an independent curator for a long time and I do a lot of curatorial work over the summer uh, or from other projects that are bringing in uh, that summer income. So the summer stipend is a way to carve out time and say, okay, we've given you two months of salary, just do the project you've proposed. So I proposed to them a draft of my book manuscripts uh, with the idea that then by the time I was uh, in London in the spring, I would have the opportunity to really have a complete draft and use the time in the archives to fill in gaps so that I really had a clear sense of what I wanted to say and what was missing in terms of evidence or uh, context and I could use the archives to fill that in, to build it out. And also, because a huge part of the Fulbright is that diplomatic mission of spreading uh, your research and kind of um, reaching out to other scholars and academic communities and the general public, they encourage uh, US scholars to give talks, not just in your host country, but in sort of neighboring countries. And so, that's a great opportunity for me as a researcher to get feedback from people I wouldn't ordinarily have access to. So as I thought about, you know, if I'm using the spring to do this kind of final research and to uh, share my work with scholars around the world, uh, or at least in this case around Europe, how can I use the summer ahead to really prepare my text and my ideas to be ready for that kind of public and refining process? Both of these grants are related to the same project. It's a, a manuscript you're working on. Let's talk about that. It is a, a book about Laura Gilpin. And that is, to be honest, uh, I had not heard of her till the first time you mentioned her to me. I'm sure mm -hmm. we've got a lot of listeners who don't know anything about her. So who was she? Laura Gilpin was a photographer. She was from Colorado and educated on the East Coast. Uh, she went to the Clarence White School, which was one of the only and definitely the most famous photography school in the early 20th century. Gilpin was born in 1891. So her life, she basically lived through all of the 20th century. Um, she passed away in 1979. And throughout the course of her career, she was, I would say by the 1920s, she was one of the most famous American photographers working. She was close friends with Ansel Adams, with Paul Strand, with photographers who people have generally heard of. Um, she was friends with Georgia O'Keeffe. She moved in 1945 to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and did that for several different reasons. Uh, her partner had polioencephalitis, um, and so they moved there for her health, but also because there was a very large lesbian community 
in Santa Fe and throughout New Mexico that she was uh, connecting with. And because her work by that point was very embedded in the Navajo Nation, where her partner, Betsy Foster, had started working as a nurse in 1931. Gilpin commuted between Red Rock, Arizona, where Foster was, and Colorado Springs, where Gilpin had a photography studio practice, a portraiture, and she did a lot of architectural photography. She basically had to make a living with photography. So she did a lot of commissions like that. But her passion was the archaeology of the Southwest originally. And so she started photographing things like cliff houses and uh, uh, ancient communities in the Southwest. And then when Betsy moved to Red Rock and started working with people in that community, they got to know, obviously, everyone in the community. And Gilpin and Foster both became very invested in contemporary Navajo politics which in the 1930s were being hugely disrupted by an ongoing series of federal policy changes. It was a moment where there was probably not a decade, uh, there probably wasn't even five years of consistent federal policy throughout the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And so uh, the Navajo were being just completely messed around by changes in administrative positions and uh, programs related to those positions. And as a result, unsurprisingly, there was a strong movement for Navajo sovereignty uh, that emerges in this period and picks up speed. And the later history of that is quite familiar to people. People know about the rise of the American Indian movement and sort of activism in the 60s and 70s, but the groundwork for that was really laid in the 1940s and 50s. And Gilpin was uh, deeply involved as um, not just an observer, but she was on the boards of a bunch of organizations that were connected to uh, Southwestern Indian affairs, particularly when it came to the arts, but just in general as well. She was supporting uh, programs run by the Navajo government and by places like the University of New Mexico that were supporting Navajo students that were uh, a lot of the AIM activism came out of student activism and student awareness. She starts out making these photographs that are very historical and very uh, picturesque in sometimes very stereotypical ways. And by the 40s, she's become politicized. She's become invested in this other narrative of Navajo life and starts trying to create work that communicates that to a broader audience. She understands that she has this reach that really is international as a fine art photographer. And so she starts to make work and she... Um, sends the photographs uh, on exhibition around the country, but also she creates uh, lantern slide presentations, kind of the precursor to PowerPoints, where she would go around uh, and tour with these slide presentations and she would have multimedia, she had recordings, she had other things that augmented these uh, visual images that she was sharing with audiences around the country, really trying to convey her perspective on um, contemporary Navajo life and to get people to move away from these stereotypes of primitivism and uh, the sort of paternalism that characterized federal attitudes toward Native people in that moment. The project you worked on before this, or at least the one that you and I spoke about before this, was J.J. Uh, McVicker. Yeah. And uh, I would like you to explain who he is a little bit, because I'm sure we'll have people who don't know. But I know that one thing you and I talked a lot about with him was his mature uh, maturity as an artist, the way he grew as an artist over time. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that many scholars of art history are interested in that. But that, at least based on the two things I have seen you work on, that seems to really draw your attention. Somebody who just doesn't do the same thing for their whole career. Right. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. And I had not connected the two projects in that way, but that's a great insight into why they're interesting. When I had thought about the connections between them before, I'd thought about the ways in which I'm interested in these art histories that get lost. You know, McVicker, head of the OSU art department, also exhibiting around the country, around the world, and yet no one has heard of him. Mm-hmm. And so how did that happen? Not just sort of what is it about McVicker that's interesting, but what is it about the history of the history of art that made that not an interesting story anymore? Where, how did he get erased? And Gilpin as well, like I said, she was probably the most famous photographer in uh, the United States in circa 1925. And now people have only heard of her if they're from Santa Fe. But that question of biography is, uh, is one that has become more and more interesting to me. You know, I'm not someone who thinks of myself as a biographer. And you can't really read the McVicker book, uh, Centering Modernism, to get a biography of him. I don't dwell uh, consistently on his personal experience. Uh, I tend to put him in the context of the bigger picture of American art. And the same with Gilpin. I start from Gilpin and I talk a lot about her in some parts of the book, but in other parts, I'm talking about Navajo history. I'm talking about lesbian sensibilities in this pre-Stonewall moment. I'm talking about really big cultural stories that Gilpin just happens to be kind of present for, but that obviously deeply inform the way that she's making images. And I think that narrative of change over time is really important because for me, one of the things that's exciting about art is the way that it invites people to think about how they perceive the world and it exposes them to new ideas, but it also prompts this kind of reflection. And I think when you study the history of art, seeing individual people change over time, artists change their opinions over time, it's a way, and I know that I said this to you about McVicker when we were talking about him, it's a way to watch their thinking happen. And that can be very revelatory in terms of our own thinking, right? Like a lot of people, I think in this particular moment are questioning their own values in relation to race in American culture and questioning their own experience. And, you know, art is a great way to look at how other people have had those experiences, look at how they've felt about being a black person in America or in the case of Gilpin, um, being lesbian in America, being Navajo in America in a certain period. And it reminds us that identity is not static, right? That we're all continually changing and growing and learning. And I think one of the things that frustrated me when I first started researching Gilpin is that people have looked at her early work, which I think it's uh, entirely appropriate to categorize as as racist. It's this primitivizing, Mm -hmm. simplified view of native people. And they've said, well, Gilpin, she's just one more white person photographing Indians in a stereotypical way and they haven't looked at the rest of it. And so for me to come back and say, okay, but what about the 35 years that she spent honing her own craft and her own understanding? I mean, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to think of another artist who spent 35 years trying to understand another culture Hmm. in collaboration with that culture that she was so adamant that she didn't want to behave like an anthropologist. She didn't want to go in, and try to blend in and become an insider in order to tell an inside story. She was very aware of her own outsider status. And for her, the advantage of that was that she could talk to other outsiders. And so she saw herself, really, I think today we would call her an ally 
and her actions as uh, actions of allyship in relation to the Navajo. But I remember you talking about sort of your discovery of J.J. McVicker when you were the curator of the OSU Museum of Art. So I'd like to hear that story again. And then also when you explain that, of course, it made sense how you ended up doing the, the book on him. How did you then end up on her? Because it's a different story, but I'm curious what drew you to her? What, how did you go, this is my next one? Yeah, McVicker was a surprise and an accident. Uh, as you say, you know, I arrived at OSU and the museum wasn't even a gleam in anyone's eye uh, in 2009. But by early 2010, we were building a museum and there I was in the middle of it. And I was discovering this artwork that I would say the vast majority of it, I'd never given any thought to before. It was a lot of artists who were new to me because they were very regional and even directly uh, connected to OSU. So my vicar was one of those and he stood out because of the excellence of his work to me. But I did not come to OSU thinking I'm going to write a book about J.J. McVicker mm. and I'm going to become an art historian of the Southwest. Having said that, my dissertation was about race and racialization in images of families in the early 20th century. And uh, I was revisiting some of the dissertation material. I was thinking about uh, maybe turning that into a book project of some kind. Very early on, uh, after I arrived at OSU, I was actually giving talks about Gilpin and one particular photograph called Navajo Madonna, which is of uh, their family friend, Lily Benelli, and her son, Norman. Because of the context of the dissertation, I was really thinking about the Madonna as a metaphor for the American family in this period, which it uh, was used as is in a variety of contexts. You know, we think about pioneer woman sculptures, we can think about all kinds of examples. I was, uh, my students uh, are familiar with Dorothea Lange's migrant mother photograph from the Depression, right? So mm -hmm. another example of creating this Madonna type imagery that is about American identity. And so I had been thinking about Gilpin's photograph of Benelli in terms of the argument that it was making about American identity and motherhood. And when I uh, went on sabbatical, I had to think of a project. I needed a new project. I just finished Centering Modernism and it was kind of, what am I going to do? And it was actually uh, totally coincidentally, I had a meeting with a representative from the NEH and I said, you know, I have all these small projects. They don't seemed to come together into a book. Um, and I described these little projects to him and he said, you know, all of these projects share very strong thematic ties. And it sounds to me like you just described a book. And I thought, oh, that's fascinating. I had never thought about them as connected, sort of like you just did with Centering Modernism and the Gilpin Project. Like, here's this obvious connection that you hadn't even noticed. <laughs> um, <laughs> But that made me think differently. So I went on sabbatical in the fall of 2017, thinking that the Gilpin project would be a chapter in a book that was about three other artists as well. The first thing I did that sabbatical year was I had a month long uh, fellowship to work with the Gilpin archives at the Eamon Carter Museum in Fort Worth. They have all her papers. She donated them uh, before she died. So I spent a month going through Gilpin's archive and at the end of the month was uh, very, very cognizant of the fact that this was not a chapter, this was at least one book of its own. Hmm. There's, the, there's that element of serendipity, right? Like you go in thinking you're doing one thing and you end up doing something completely different. And this wasn't quite so different, 
but it was, uh, it was certainly not where I expected to be. Um, and so I had lined up all these fellowships for the year that I was on sabbatical doing research on this book project. And now I have folders full of stuff that it's like, well, that's going to have to wait because those are the chapters that aren't the Gilpin stuff. <laughs> but meanwhile, the enormity of the story, I think, first of all, just the fascination with that I have with these underdog artists who are uh, left out of art history. And so wanting to recuperate the work of a woman who I think was a genius uh, and just a brilliant photographer, a thoughtful human being and ahead of her time in terms of the way that she was making the argument that you have to, um, as a government, as the federal government, that you have to listen to and respect native sovereignty. Um, it's an obvious thing to say now in certain contexts, mm. uh, but I'll be honest, the federal government still doesn't listen to native nations uh, the way that it should. So for her to be saying that in the 1930s and 40s was, uh, was exciting to me. The intersectionality of thinking about is one of the reasons that she had this political passion connected to her experience as a lesbian and kind of already someone who was outside of mainstream culture and structures. And I think that for sure she and Betsy had always used camping and kind of went out into these remote areas because of the social freedom that it afforded them. But then when Betsy was living in Red Rock, which is this tiny, tiny community, and, um, you know, Navajo are famous for traditionally not living in urban structures, like they don't make towns or villages or anything, they're very spread out. Um, and so that emptiness, and yet the sense of community and that everyone knew each other, that was something that Gilpin was fascinated by, because it gave people a lot of freedom to be their individual selves. But also the Navajo traditional approach to outsiders is basically like, well, you're not us, so we care less about what you do. You know, like you do you, but you're not Navajo, so we're not going to judge you by our standards. And obviously you can't make sweeping generalizations about a whole culture, but I think they encountered that attitude enough. I mean, they all were just, uh, they were always accepted as a couple. They were accepted as a family unit. There's more detail that I could go into um, about that, but I'll save it for the book. Um, <laughs> Uh, but basically, there's this sense of empathy that I think then made it possible for Gilpin to ask questions about policy that most white people who engaged with the Navajo were not asking, and to do that with a sensitivity. I think one of the challenges when you're talking about uh, race and gender and sexuality is that people want to essentialize those things. They want to mm. say, well, you are this way because you're a lesbian. Mm. And for me, it was like, well, Gilpin maybe because she was a lesbian, could recognize that the way that she interacted with society was a cultural construction, right? Like it wasn't anything about her. It was that she had to be very careful about where she was uh, out, where she acknowledged Betsy as her partner. And she saw that changing over time. And she saw that being very dependent on which community she was in. You know, like she could be way more uh, open about her sexuality in New York City than she could in Colorado Springs. Mm. Similarly, she could be way, way, way more out about her sexuality in the middle of nowhere when no one's watching her than she could in New York City. Mm -hmm. So I think that all of that comes together uh, just to create a, a sense of how social structures affect 
individuals and communities in ways that we don't necessarily uh, always find it easy to see or acknowledge. Being an art historian, you do a lot of research alone, like you're talking about going to the archive, and it's really just mm -hmm. kind of you looking at uh, documents, <laughs> pictures and things. Uh, I guess that is an advantage right now in that you don't have to directly uh, interact with people. Well, I, I guess what I'm saying is there's a lot of researchers that I'm sure are much more okay. delayed right now than you would be. It's true. You know, you asked if the NEH grant uh, involved travel and the way that I wrote it, it doesn't. It's just me sitting and writing uh, with the understanding that I have already amassed all of this archival material, which is true. And I can certainly fill two months writing. But one of the things that I was intending to do over the summer and fall before I left uh, is interview people. Uh, a huge component of this project is about talking about indigenous uh, epistemologies, by which I mean thinking about how the ways that we tell history have been dominated in academia by uh, certain standards and ideas that don't have a lot to do with how Native communities have preserved and told their history over time. And sometimes that's about cultural differences and sometimes that's about access, right? Uh, that it could just be that whereas in Oklahoma we have a little newspaper in every little town and there's the uh, kind of economics to support that, particularly in the 20th century, Native uh, nations and communities have not necessarily had the wealth to be producing their own history in these ways uh, or documents of their community. And then also oral history is a huge part of, of native history production and preservation. Uh, part of what I'm doing in the book is talking about the way that biography is a tool that we can use to decolonize native history. Um, and so I'm investigating the biographies of the people that Gilpin photographed. She tells a lot of stories about their lives in the book. And one of the things that I think is interesting and distinguishes her from other photographers is that in the book, she presents multiple photographs of the same people over many, many decades. Oh, wow. Um, because she knew them for that long. And she wanted to tell these stories, like these are people whose lives have been changing in the same way that we were talking about Gilpin's attitudes and opinions changing as she went through her career, everyone does that, right? Like everyone's growing and changing. And so she tells some of those stories and it's a way of refusing the kind of frozen in time stereotype of photographs of native people that something like um, an Edward Curtis photograph presents to us. I'm interested in biographies. Obviously, most of the people that she photographed have passed away mm. and they're not people who you can go look up. You know, they're ordinary people living in rural uh, Arizona and New Mexico. So I've been reaching out to family members, to descendants of these people and having conversations with them. But that does involve oral history. There's obviously relationship building that needs to happen to make those conversations real. And I did get an Oklahoma Humanities Grant to go and travel out to the Navajo Nation last summer, the summer before, I lose track of time. <laughs> but, but in fact, one of, the, one of the rules about that grant was that I was not allowed to do anything that would have been considered working with human subjects, which meant that unless it fell into the category of journalism, which is this very strange distinction within the realm of human subject research. 
mm-hmm. uh, I couldn't ask people anything. So I, it was difficult to know who I could talk to and who I couldn't. And so I had to really frame this in terms of like, well, this is, uh, I am only talking to people about their individual contemporary experience and I'm not making generalizations, which is true. Generalizations are antithetical, I think, to uh, responsible research in um, indigenous studies. But nonetheless, uh, it was an opportunity for me to build relationships with people who I then said, you know, I would love to talk to you later when I'm not necessarily in a position of putting Oklahoma Humanities into an awkward position in terms of what I was doing with their funding. And now I can't travel, I can't uh, see people. And um, to a certain extent, you can replace that with Zoom. But I think as we all know, it helps if you have a previous sort of existing relationship with the person that you're seeing virtually. Yeah. So I have been a little bit challenged by that, but nothing like if I had intended to go to archives and was then stuck away from them. Well, and here's a tip for people listening. If they don't have a lot of experience interviewing people really in any context, I've, you know, I've been doing this now for about 20 years. And I always say there's a, there's a lot of things about my job that aren't necessarily what people expect. But the number one thing I try to do is just make people comfortable. You get people comfortable and they'll give you good stories and good answers. But if they're nervous, it's a lot of yes, no, I don't know. That doesn't make for a very good exactly. story. Exactly. So. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's, uh, it's layered with Navajo people are the most studied Native people in North America. And there's a lot of suspicion. A lot of that research has not been put to particularly good use, right? Mm. Like all of the federal policies that have damaged the Navajo uh, nation over time, whether it's mining or uh, destroying sheep herds or even just the way COVID was handled, right? Mm. All of this research has really rarely done the Navajo Nation any good. And so there's a suspicion of outsiders, there's a suspicion of academics. I think both of those things are, are completely fair, but getting to know people, um, sharing my research with them, letting them read what I've written before I ask them to talk to me about it, uh, all of these things are an important way to build those relationships and to, yeah, hopefully um, generate some trust. So you've been sort of explaining how you do art history but I'm sure we have some people listening who may not really understand the term. How, how do you explain art history to people who don't know what it is? Well, I would hesitate to speak for all art <laughs> historians because I think we all do it a little bit differently. And I really think of myself as uh, a cultural historian and a historian of American visual culture, by which I mean, I am not someone who studies paintings and sculptures that were intentionally created by artists for placement in a museum kind of stereotype of what art is. I'm much more fluid than that. So even though Gilpin very much thought of herself as an artist, the ways in which she disseminated her work, I described the lantern slide performances earlier, um, the fact that the product of all of this work with the Navajo was a book, not an exhibition, although there were exhibitions of the material in the book. Her primary products Uh, in her mind was the book itself Mm. because she wanted that broad audience. She wanted it to be mass produced. It was published by the University of Texas Press and she wanted it to be uh, affordable and accessible to people, which is sort of the opposite of our stereotype of art, right? So the reason that I call myself a cultural historian is because my interest in the art is in the ways that it both reflects and contributes to the production of history, right? that Gilpin is a photographer who looks around and says, oh, I'm going to make beautiful images of 
these aspects of the world, but she's not just trying to make something pretty. Mm. She's also saying, I am going to make these images because I want them to go out into the world and be actors. I want them to have an effect. And so for me as a historian, that raises all these issues, right? Like why does she feel compelled by this subject matter? What cultural conversations is she feeling a need to engage with, right? Like why is there urgency? She didn't look around and say, oh, I need to photograph squirrels because squirrel conservation is an issue because everyone knows squirrel conservation is not an issue, at least for our generic squirrels mm. around here. Yeah. Um, the subjects that artists choose reflect the broader concerns of a culture. And then I think the other thing that I love about art is that it has that individual aspect and it can be quite quirky, but it also tends uh, to shed light on aspects of cultural history that don't get documented in traditional historical media, right? That if you just look at the political history of the Southwest, for example, like you would learn about the wars, you would learn about conflict, you would learn about treaties, but you wouldn't learn about traditional foodways. Mm. Whereas Gilpin's photographs, not necessarily on purpose, but they document, and the text that she wrote to describe the photographs documents how Navajo women were making food. That was a big part of uh, the time that she spent with people that she visited was eating and drinking. And so that process became interesting to her. I mean, if I thought about it for longer, I could think of other examples. I was thinking the other day about ecology and how her photographs document plant life across the Navajo nation. And I was like, oh, I wonder, like that's probably changed in a hundred years. What could we learn about that, you know? And so uh, visual culture offers these really surprising ways to access history. And for me, since I was an undergraduate, it was always about the people whose stories don't get told. I started out as a women's studies major and it was like, oh, like art can tell us about the experience of working class people. It can tell us about the experience of women, people who are definitely not in my history textbooks. You uh, were showing me your McVicker exhibit at the OSU Museum of Art. And we talked a little bit about abstract art. And mm -hmm. like most uh, people who don't have an art background, I look at abstract art and I just don't really get it. But you had a really good, I thought, a really good explanation of uh, abstract art and, and its value, I guess. G could you try to boil that down for people who maybe, like me, go, well, that doesn't look like anything at all, so it's not any good? Well, and, and it's funny because one of the reasons that Gilpin, uh, ironically, was sort of dropped from the art history canon is because right when she got interested in the Navajo project, American art as a whole was going whole hog towards abstraction. Mm -hmm. And so she had been doing these beautiful abstract photographs of the landscape, continued to make abstract photographs of the landscape, but they were almost photographs that she was making for her own personal satisfaction. They were beautiful. They were kind of thoughtful studies of light and shadow, but they didn't have much in the way of political meaning for her. And yet at the same time, the way that photography was gaining legitimacy in the art market was because it was uh, demonstrating that it could make these gorgeous large scale abstractions. I mean, again, Ansel Adams is such a perfect example of someone who can find the abstract in the landscape. Or if we think about uh, Edward Weston um, and his still life photographs of fruits and vegetables that just become these incredible abstractions. 
people really wanted her to do that and she wasn't doing that. And so they're like, oh, you don't get it. You're doing photography wrong. And they started calling her uh, a photojournalist, which is like the most insulting thing you can say to a fine art photographer in this period. Yeah, I, to, to, to go back and think about sort of abstraction as something that is really difficult for people to engage with. I think that idea of trust is a good one to come back to sort of uh, if we take artists seriously, then our first question, it's not, I mean, it's about trusting our own instincts, like you said, but it's also about trusting theirs. And so for me, whether it's looking at Gilpin and saying, oh, you can do abstract photography, but you're choosing not to. Mm -hmm. What happens if I trust you and listen to what you're doing and let you uh, educate me, basically? I think with McVicker, it's the same. There is McVicker and he's working in abstraction in this moment in Oklahoma where pretty much everyone is working representationally. And it's like, well, why, why is he invested in that? Instead of saying, ugh, you don't get it in your heart to understand and it's just a square on a white canvas, to say, well, what if I listen to you? And part of it is about looking at that whole story, right? I think the, the beautiful thing for me about the McVicker exhibition and centering modernism is its opportunity to look at his thought process. So whether you go through the book or the exhibition, you don't just get presented with this black and white canvas that's stripes and apparently incomprehensible. You get the story of how we got there as well. But equally, if you are standing in front of the stripes with no preparation, then if, you are if you're willing to say, okay, I trust the artist that this was worth doing, and I trust myself to react to this thing, and I'm going to pay attention to my reaction, then you could even, even if you make up something completely wrong, you start to create a narrative about why that painting looks the way it does, or mm -hmm. that artwork looks the way it does. Beautifully, abstraction is about those physiological and intellectual responses, right? It's not about history. Um, in fact, it's about trying to make an object that you need no context for. And so the viewer who knows nothing is the perfect viewer. And yeah, like you say, as long as they trust themselves, apparently, like I said, as long as you trust yourself. <laughs> you also just made or at least uh, pointed to an interesting point there, I think. Um, this question about art and what did the artist intend versus what do we take out of it? And, and does it matter what the artist intended or is all that matters what you take as a consumer or as a viewer of the art, um, which, which I think is very interesting. Yeah. And I think there has to be a happy medium. My mother and grandmother have this phrase, moderation in all things. Mm. And it applies to academics as much as it applies to whatever they apply it to the rest of life. By which I mean, every artist works with intention. They might not always be aware of their intentions. The way that we understand the world as cultures informs our intentions and our expectations for how those are gonna be understood and read. And that changes over time. And so even if an artist gave you a sort of 10 page explanation of their intent around an object, like there's going to be stuff they don't understand because we can't see the water we're swimming in, so to speak. And so every encounter with an artwork is going to be partly what the artist is offering and what you're bringing to it. At the same time, we can have a good faith relationship with the artist's intention or we cannot. So for example, with Gilpin, I said early on, um, she gets dismissed as this kind of 
thoughtless replicator of a tradition of representing Native people. In some cases, early on, uh, when her primary goal was to sell postcard images of her prints so that she could buy food to live, her intentions were pretty market-driven and pretty, uh, pretty much her intention was to reproduce a stereotype because that's what sold. But to then, uh, as viewers walk away from the next 50 years of her career and say, well, I guess it was all that way and I'm not gonna pay any attention, um, is not to, not to give her credit for her changing intentions over time. You know, again, I can't help but think about current events in relation to that and to think about how people are listening and learning a lot in the current moment and some people are changing their minds. You know, I think about the renaming of Murray Hall and that's been a conversation for 20 something years and it has not always been the intention of the administration to listen to people's concerns about that. But those intentions have changed and I think we need to honor the people who've done all that work over time to keep that conversation alive, to keep bringing up the concern. But we also have to give credit to the changing intention of the administration to recognize that people can learn and they can change, which is a very moralizing way to end that discussion. But I do think that intentionality suggests there's a right answer and that things might have a fixed meaning and nothing does right? Because we as people change and history changes. So along with being a researcher as a professor, you also teach. You were teaching this last semester when uh, COVID-19 hit and the semester went from mostly in-person classes to all online. You're planning to teach in the fall when classes are supposed to be in person, but we don't really know exactly what's going to happen. What is that like as a uh, professor when you can't fully prepare for what the semester is gonna look like? My priority is always to give my students the best possible experience. And the spring was so frustrating in that regard because I was teaching museum exhibition, which is this class that is predicated upon direct contact with objects in the museum collection. In fact, we weren't curating an exhibition that in the spring, we were organizing study room visits for classes across campus. And all of that got taken away from us. You know, we were gonna have six or seven different classes come and use the collection, ranging from ag to design to architecture. And none of those students, not just mine, but the other students in the other classes, none of them got that experience. And that was heartbreaking. And I think, you know, online uh, teaching is a skill, like classroom teaching is a skill. And they are not skill sets that completely overlap. Um, so for me, it was a challenge to figure out student engagement. You know, my, my classroom is uh, very conversational. It depends a lot on the people who are in the room really showing up and participating, which I think is important because as we were just talking about, you know, in the same way that an artwork is about the artwork and the viewer kind of meeting and making meaning together, any humanities learning is about people making meaning out of what we're studying together. I can't do it by myself. I can't just lecture at people and have them uh, absorb that information. It would make, te I mean, it does make teaching less rewarding for me when I'm just putting out my thoughts and not getting anything back. Mm -hmm. um, the dialogue is at the heart of what I do when I teach. And obviously as an art historian and as someone who's been so deeply involved with the museum over the past 10 years, I'm also very object oriented. And so I love teaching that class because we get to go work with objects in the museum for real. And that was difficult. So I think as we look forward toward the fall, we have to think about 
how are we going to offer our students the best possible experience um, in terms of teaching and learning? For me personally, looking at plans that say, okay, you can have 12 students in your classroom that usually holds 80 and we're all wearing masks and we're all uh, spaced apart. That's not my mental picture mm. of an in-person classroom where I split my, um, my class up into small groups and they work on things together. And it's very literally hands-on a lot of the time. And uh, it's not my mental picture because I think that when we're that far apart and if only half my class is in the room at any given moment, we're not having the spontaneous dialogue, right? Um, if we're wearing masks, half the people in the room are gonna struggle to hear. It's already hard to hear each other in a forward-facing classroom. But if everyone's masked, like I don't know if you've had the experience going to the grocery store or just engaging where it's like, I'm sorry, what did you say? Um, again and again. One of the surprising lessons that I learned in the spring, I had a, a lecture class, the museum exhibition class, and then I had a graduate seminar and the graduate seminar, we just shifted online, but we did it through Canvas, but synchronously. We were just in video conference for every seminar meeting. And I was surprised at how connected we still felt to each other uh, and how naturally the conversation flowed, even though you know you get like the weird audio phenomena and what have you, it was still a totally vibrant discussion. And as a bonus, I was stunned at how the students used the chat feature. Hmm to have this kind of meta conversation about our conversation and it was fascinating and really thought provoking for me to think about how online meeting tools actually enrich the conversation we can have. Students were putting uh, kind of tangential questions in the chat or they were offering up links to resources that connected to what we were talking about. So they didn't have to interrupt each other but then we had this extra kind of um, engagement so that was fascinating. I'm guessing in a classroom setting, if students were texting each other, those questions, of course, you don't know that, you're discouraging them from texting because they're not paying attention, right? Exactly, exactly. And it's, uh, yeah, inevitably, it's a conversation from which I at least and possibly many people in the room are excluded, whereas when you have it there mm. invisible and you're encouraging it as a useful resource, it's actually... Um, contributing to the quality of the experience for everyone. The other thing that I realized in the lecture class is that suddenly we had access to people as guest speakers that it would never have occurred to me to invite before. So although the exhibition class was shut down in terms of access to the museum, pretty much at the last minute, because everything was at the last minute, I invited an alum who uh, now works at Universal Limited Art Editions up in uh, New York to talk to the class. The theme of the exhibition class was history of printmaking. So he talked about his work with this major fine art press and he gave us a video tour of the facility because he was living there um, during the pandemic. We had a guest artist uh, through the museum that we did via Zoom who otherwise wouldn't have been able to travel and talk to the students um, that we weren't initially expecting to have any interaction with. So there are opportunities, and I, like I said, as I look toward the fall, I think face-to-face -face doesn't mean what people think it means, and online teaching offers these surprising resources if you have time to plan them and really think it through, and I'm getting really excited. I was thinking about doing a digital humanities project with my American Art Survey class anyway, and it seems like 
the perfect thing to kind of segue into an online environment. And even if it ends up being hybrid, the possibilities of the online component are so great. But I'll be honest with you, I think that it's not safe to bring that many people into an enclosed space. Our classrooms don't even have windows in the art building, or at least the art history classrooms don't. And so I'm hoping that we go fully online for big classes like that. Um, and I do think that it will present surprising opportunities. I want to thank Louise for joining me for this episode. If you have any feedback, you can contact us at pokespodcasts at okstate.edu. And with that, we'll conclude with our standard question, how are the arts and sciences making the world a better place? Yesterday afternoon, I was thinking that we should change the name of the college to the College of Arts, Humanities, and Sciences, Mm -hmm. because for me, we need the humanities to make sense of art and science. So my answer is going to be about the humanities and how they're making the world a better place. (laughs) When I was in eighth grade, I did an internship at our local newspaper. And the first thing that the reporter I worked with taught me is that every newspaper has to tell the reader who, what, when, where, why, and how. And those are the core questions of the humanities. And we apply them to art and science on a regular basis. So I'll give you an example. The sciences tell us that there are no physiological differences connected to what we think of as race, but almost half of division one football players are black, even though less than 15% of the general American population is. So how do we explain that? We have to go to the humanities skill set and ask who, what, when, where, why. As we do, we discover that histories of economics, popular culture, and racial prejudice all contribute to the explanation. And on the way to that discovery, we might have started asking other questions. We might ask, why are less than a fifth of college football coaches black if so many players are? We might ask, why aren't there more black swimmers or tennis players? So no matter what questions we're led to ask in the humanities, we end with what I think is the most important question, um, which is what does this information tell us about what we as a society value? And are we happy with that or does it need to change? I'll give you another example. There are wind farms all over Oklahoma, which are a product of a long collaboration between science and engineering. I personally value sustainable energy, and so I'm invested in the idea that windmills have value. Before we renovated the Postal Plaza downtown, we had nowhere to store the art collection, and so it was scattered across campus. And I had an artwork from the museum in my office. It was an etching by Anne Subra-Casso of windmills in in Altamont Pass in California. And I love the print for its technical skill and for its beauty. But my appreciation of those things is enhanced by my admiration for the ecological values that it represents. I like that it's a picture of windmills because I think windmills are important. But one of my colleagues pointed out when he saw the print in my office that windmills endanger birds, which made me think about their impact differently uh, and forced me to assess my priorities and values, which is why I'm an art historian, uh, because art is a tool that artists use to express their values, but it's also a prompt for us to think about ours. Even the simplest internet meme is a visual expression of a social value. So going back to my argument about visual culture, like it's everywhere, right? Every every image that we produce is an expression of a value that the person who made it wants to promote. And I think that we should always have a little Jiminy Cricket with us asking, is the world that we're helping to create one that reflects our values? Um, The humanities make the world a better place because they're the means by which we investigate, reflect upon and refine those values. (music) 